As I mentioned last week, we probably have a wide variety of thoughts about heaven. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are probably more cultural. But they're in our minds no matter what. And as we talked last week, at the center of, of the eternal existence that God's people have is allegiance to Jesus. That we are not called just to a, a point of decision and then do what we want, but we're called to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. But there's another element to that whole idea of allegiance to Jesus as the, the center point of heaven. And that is what Peter brings up here in the second, chapter, second letter that he writes. In this letter, he's writing about the end times. He talks in the passage we read about the, the day coming unexpectedly, like a thief. And when you get to verse 13, he says this, But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth that God has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. In the version that we read, uh, Goody read, it talks about a play, righteousness dwells in heaven. The word that's, you, that's used there to, to translate it dwells, lives, it can also be translated home. You think about what home means to us. Now, we may have positive feelings about home, we may have negative feelings about home, but when you think about what you wish home would be, Home is the place where you feel comfortable, safe. Home is the place where you, you feel like you can be yourself. When you're, when you're home, if you want to wear sweats and a t-shirt all day, you can. You know, when, when you're home, you can eat supper on the couch instead of at the table if you want to. When you're home, you can take out your contacts and wear your glasses that you don't really like. And when you're home, you can be yourself. You shut the doors. You don't have to be on. You don't have to make appearances. You don't have to be a certain persona. You just be yourself. And at the core, that's what being home is. And when Peter says that righteousness is at home in heaven, he's saying it is comfortable there. And why is that? Because righteousness is really a synonym God. Righteousness is the nature of God, the essence of God. No wonder he says heaven is at home. Righteousness is at home in heaven. Everything about our eternal existence with God in heaven will be what God wants. It will be God's mind, God's priorities, God's desires, God's yearnings, God's will. God will rule. And the, the thing about that is God rules now. The difference is now people fight it. Those who are in that eternal existence with him embrace it. It's all that they want. Everyone who is there wants what God wants. And that's why Lewis can write in The Great Divorce that there are people who even given the opportunity to be in heaven don't want to be there because it doesn't offer them anything that they desire. Because heaven is about God's desires, and so much of us is about our desires. 
And sometimes we think, well, I'll live for myself and my desires and self-interest. And then when the day comes, I can flick the switch. It just doesn't work that way. We want what we want. And righteousness is really the essence of God's will being brought to all of its fullness. And people who are righteous are people who want that at the very core of their being. When we think about God's righteousness, and, you, and if, you tra- if you trace it through the scriptures, you find that the righteousness of God is very holistic. We tend to think of righteousness as rules and regulations and these, these standards that, that we are supposed to live up to. We think of it as, as sort of like writing a, a paper on, a, on the computer, a document, and you justify the margin and it's straight. And we think of perfection as righteousness. And there is certainly a yearning for that. But at its heart, there is this holistic sense of the world being as God created it and intended it to be. That's really what righteousness is. It is setting things right. And so in heaven, everything that is broken and twisted and turned will be set right the way God always designed it. And people who are righteous want that. We want God to set it right the way he designed. And it's sin that keeps us from wanting that. But the day is coming when that will be the case. And that means that creation becomes what God intended it from the beginning. In that day, the flowers that we see now are a glimpse of the the vibrant flowers that we will see then. And the glimpses we get of the lushness of grass now is just a precursor to the amazing, indescribable lushness of the grass in that day. It is, it is all of God's creation coming to its fullness, being restored, not just to what it was in Eden, but even beyond. And people will be made fully human. Disciples of Jesus, people who want what Jesus wants, people who are made righteous, will not be less human. We will be more human. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a couple of weeks. But it is, it is bringing us to the fullness of how God created us to be. Because, because sin doesn't make us more human. Sin makes us less human. It's sin that gets between us and another person and damages our relationships It's sin that brings shame and guilt on us. It's sin that holds us back from being all that God created us to be. It's righteousness that makes us and moves us to what God always intended for us. And so when you think about that and what that existence will be, and you put that in the context of Colossians chapter 3 that we've been talking about where Paul says... Think about the things of heaven instead of the things of earth. Shape your life around the things of heaven and the designs of heaven. That means that if heaven is described as the place where righteousness dwells, then we want righteousness to dwell in us and in this place as well. It's sort of the answer to our prayer that we prayed a few moments ago, that God's will would be done 
His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means to be righteous people. To want that, to desire that, to shape our lives around that. So that when God speaks, we do what God wants. When God says go, we go. When God says stop, we stop. When God says obey, we obey. Whatever God desires, that's the yearning of our hearts. And we know how often we fall short of that, but that's the yearning of our hearts. That's our desire. And when we begin to desire that, then we become the people, the church, that God intended us to be. In Acts chapter 1, God, Jesus says to the disciples, You will be my witnesses. You will bear witness of me and my kingdom in this world. And righteous people bear witness to the righteousness of God. And that means we become a presence for God in a broken and needy world. We become hope in the midst of despair. We become life in the midst of death. We become grace where there is none. We become truth where the world is all about lies. We become the presence of righteousness, this holistic mindset of healing and grace and love and mercy and truth that is, that is at the core of God's being and his kingdom. We become agents of righteousness. Agents of God's flourishing, his design for his creation. We, start, we become people who give folks a glimpse of the eternal kingdom that is called by Jesus good news. What I have in my mind is, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember what the commercial was about. Maybe I've, that, I'm finding that more and more to be the case. I don't know about you, but I watch a commercial, I'm entertained, but I have no idea what the product was. I don't know if you have that experience. But, but it was a commercial where the screen was just covered with a black and white drawing. Just, just a, uh, a design all the, over the screen. And it was just this design as the person in the background was talking. Very bland. And then a drop of color is placed in the bottom corner. And that color begins to grow and spread until the whole screen is vibrant with reds and blues and greens and yellows. And it just comes alive. And that's the image that I have of righteous people, God's agents of righteousness in this world. That we bring color in a world that is drab because of sin. And we bring hope and we bring healing and we bring grace. So that when we, when we interact with someone... There is a sense of them encountering something, a glimpse of God's great, glorious, flourishing kingdom. His righteousness. We struggle with that. We struggle to be that. I believe it was the philosopher Nietzsche who said something like, you Christians are going to have to look a whole lot more redeemed if you want us to believe anything about your Redeemer. And I think there's some truth to that. Do we bring that holistic righteousness to bear on the places we are and the people we interact with? It's the calling of God's people. 
heard about a woman who said to some friends, my son feels like he's being called to be a pastor in the ministry. And their response was, oh, I'm so sorry. Your son was always such a happy, joyful person. I'm sorry that that's happened to him. There is this mindset that we have about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And even more so, what it means to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. A full-on disciple of Jesus. We have given the world this impression that that's a negative thing instead of a positive thing. And yet, we look at Jesus. And the people flock to him. And when people interacted with Jesus, they left better than they came. They left transformed and changed because of their interactions with Jesus. I think there are some hurdles for us that we have to overcome in order to to be these kinds of agents of righteousness. And one of them is we need a new vision of the eternal kingdom. We will never be the agents of righteousness who bring this kind of holistic flourishing to the world until we come to believe that our eternal existence is about holistic flourishing. Peter talks here about you know, fire and destruction. And we often think that that means God is going to, he's going to obliterate this earth that he made and everything on it. He's going to start all over again. But when you read that in the context of all the rest of Scripture, I don't think that's what Peter's saying. I do think he's saying that fire, which often in Scripture is used as something to purify and to cleanse, I think that's what he's talking about. That this world of sin and evil and brokenness is going to be purified. And God will restore and renew into this new heaven and new earth in which we will exist. This earth that is so much better and so far beyond what we can imagine as we live in this broken world now. Because when sin entered the picture, the world didn't get better. The world didn't get more colorful, more vibrant. It got less. And God's going to restore that. And we need an image of that. An image of this holistic flourishing of God's kingdom so that as we embrace that, we begin to embrace it now. And so many of our images of heaven and of eternal life are quite frankly not all that appealing. As a kid, you know, I got to be honest with you. When I thought about heaven, it was the most boring thing I could possibly imagine. And I think that had a bearing on my desire about following Jesus. When we think, when we create an atmosphere, a picture of eternal life that is boring, what we're really saying is that God is boring. And actually what we're saying is that sin is what's exciting. If you really want to live, sin is the place to be. That's what will make life exciting. God, not so much. We've got the whole thing turned around. Sin doesn't make life more exciting. It destroys life. It's at the heart of what it is, of evil. And when we read the news and when we listen to what's going on in the world, all of the crime and the, and the wars and the violence and all these things that trouble us, those are not the result of righteousness. That's the result of sin and evil. 
And we need to get a grasp of the bigger picture of God's kingdom. But I think in order to do that, we need the mind of Christ. We need to be witnesses of this kind of righteous flourishing in the way Jesus does. And that means we think like Jesus thinks and we do what Jesus does. I was thinking this week that when Jesus comes to earth, in essence, what he's doing is he is is leaving the place where God's righteousness is perfectly experienced. Everything about Jesus' existence before coming to earth is in the perfection, the perfect fulfillment and, and desire and of God's will and purposes. And he leaves that to come here where God's will and desire is continually debated and abandoned and rejected and hated. And why would he do that? Because God's will is abandoned and rejected and debated and hated. It's for that very reason that he leaves that place where it's so right and comes here because he wants to make this place right too. And to bring redemption and flourishing and life and hope and transformation. To bring the truth to us. And that means it's to be, to bear witness to the righteousness of God, to be agents of righteousness. You have to get with it has to be incarnational. You cannot do it from a distance. I had a professor in seminary, a counseling professor, who used to tell us there are two things you can't do by correspondence course. One of them was counseling, and the other was swimming. It's just hard to do those things by correspondence. You can't be agents of righteousness by correspondence. You've got to get in. You've got to get into the mess. You've got to get into the places where, where the righteousness of Jesus needs to be seen. And what we want to do as a church is to sort of build a fort around ourselves in this perfect place. As if we believe that. But in this place where, where all of us have the same wants and desires and we just, we're just safe. And there's a place for us to do that. But the purpose of doing that to coming together is so we can go out. And to begin thinking as we encounter people about, about seeing them the way Jesus does and being involved in them, in their lives. And loving and caring and sacrificing and giving. Because righteousness is never about self-interest. It's always about self-sacrifice. Because that's the mind of Christ. But I'm not sure we'll ever have the mind of Christ until we begin to really engage ourselves in the means of grace. The means of grace are these ancient things that God has given to the church to help us experience Him. Things like prayer, personal prayer, private prayer, and corporate prayer. This reading and the study of the Scriptures privately and corporately. Giving of our resources, serving other people, 
giving ourselves away to people in need. Corporate worship. It's a big part of that. We come together on Sundays and other times so that we can sing our songs together and remind ourselves of the truth and pray together and hear the truth proclaimed. And, and all of that is to, is to be the means of God's grace to be at work in our lives so that we can then go and be agents of God's righteous grace to a needy world. We sometimes use the term spiritual disciplines. And it's, it's kind of talking about the same thing. But for me, the word spiritual disciplines almost has a sense of, of a rule about it. That, that we're, we're, we're checking off a box if we do these things. Means of grace speaks to me as a way of opening our hearts to receive what God wants to give. But we have to do it with a want to. Now, we, we can read Scripture from beginning to end and we can pray all hours of the day. But if we do it with our teeth clenched and our, and our, and our fists clenched and, and, our, and out of not really wanting to do it but feel, feeling obligated to do it, we will find minimal results that God wants. What He wants from us is a want to a desire, a yearning to be righteous, to be what he wants us to be, to be fully what he created us to be. That's what God designs for us. And if we have a want to, he can work with that. And it can be glorious. In February of 1915, Frank Laubach and his wife arrived in uh, Davao, on the Philippine island of Mindanao. They went as missionaries to share the gospel with a, a village of people who were in desperate need, injustice, and, and it's a lot of, of burden, poverty, and, and most of them were culturally Muslim. And they went into this village, and as they lived with the people and, and worked with the people and began to understand the people, it became evident to Frank Laubach that in order to share the gospel with this, these people, they needed to, do, he needed to do something about their illiteracy. It was a barrier to hearing and understanding and progressing in the gospel. And so he created literacy programs for the people of the village. And, and, and he had this motto, each one... Teach one. And as people began to learn a bit more, become a little bit more literate, he, he put, set them off to teaching somebody else because we all know when you have to teach someone, you learn probably more than the students you're teaching. And it worked. And, and, the, and it began to grow and expand. And, and as he spent time with them and as they learned, many, many people came to Christ. But it, wasn't, it couldn't be limited to Mindanao. It began to spread to the other islands of the Philippines. And then it began to spread to other islands and nations around them until it was going around the whole world. Frank Laubach actually was quite a famous person. In fact, I just discovered this week that he actually was on a 30-cent U.S. stamp. He was that well-known. And he said that he, he got to the place of... of having this vision of God, of God's righteousness and flourishing for these people because he lived his life thinking about Jesus every moment. 
He started out, he said, by just noticing that there were little gaps in his day. Sometimes minutes, sometimes seconds, sometimes longer. When he did, had, when his mind really was disengaged. And he said, I took advantage of those moments to think about Jesus. When I had a few seconds, I directed my mind to think about Jesus. When I had a few minutes, I directed my mind to think about Jesus. When I had longer periods of time, I directed my mind to think and meditate about Jesus. And he said, pretty soon, it was just sort of all of my existence. It's like every moment was a moment to think about Jesus. And he said, it was when that began to happen that I began to see these people differently. And to love them and to care for them. And to be a presence for Jesus in their lives. Frank Laubach died in 1970 at the age of 85. And he and his wife are buried in their hometown and cemetery in Benton, Pennsylvania. And on the tombstone, it says world missionaries. Because his fame spread around the world. His program spread around the world. But many people refer to Frank Laubach as the apostle of literacy. That's how most of the people in the world think of him. But there are, there's a tribe of people, a group of people in the Congo who have a different nickname for him. Think about the Congo. From the Philippines to the Congo, that is a long ways. But they had been so transformed by his witness that they came up with their own nickname for him, and it was this. They called him the Mender of Old Baskets. The Mender of Old Baskets. And when I read that, I thought to myself, that is an agent of righteous flourishing. Because isn't the gospel about being agents of mending what is broken? Being agents used by God to bring about change and healing and hope where there is none. About transforming what is torn and twisted and misunderstood and making it new and bringing life to it. And it makes me think, when people think about my life and your life, how are they going to describe us? Father, thank you for being a God of righteousness. Thank you for your work in us to make us righteous. Give us grace to be agents of righteousness through your Holy Spirit. Amen.